the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today, um, we, if we recall yesterday, the Lord uh, on Monday cursed the fig tree as he was going in the temple, and when he came out of the temple, it was withered. Um, and this was, you know, the primary events of yesterday. Today, the Lord left Bethany and entered into the temple to teach. And there are many things that he taught during this day. And this was the focus of this day. And this is why the church calls this the day of teaching. The day of teaching. Um, and if we kind of look at what happened in these days, we can you know, divide them into the dialogues that the Lord had with different people. He had dialogues with the disciples, with the Jews, and with the people. Um, so this was the first issue, was the dialogue with the Jews. There were six encounters, or six dialogues. The first was the dialogue with the Jews. The second uh, encounter was the Lord, you know, after this dialogue with the Jews, they were convinced to reject Him, or they were sure that they were going to reject Him. So then the next dialogue uh, is the they're showing them their rejection. And He does so by two parables. He tells them one about the story of the man who had two sons, and He asked them to go work in the field. He told one son to go. And he said, uh, yes, I'll go, but never went. And then the second son, he said, go. And he said, no. And then he felt bad and went to work in the field. So showing how the Jews rejected and the Gentiles would accept. Then there was a second parable, the parable of the wicked vine dresser, in which he had a vineyard and he hired the servants of the vineyard to work in the vineyard and to give him back his uh, his crop. But they didn't. Uh, they rejected the son who was sent to them. The third dialogue was the dialogue uh, of the warnings. And this is where we see the Lord Jesus tell the uh, Pharisees and the scribes their warning about the woes, right? Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. Uh, And he concludes by him weeping over Jerusalem and saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. The fourth dialogue was when the Lord goes up to the mountain, He leaves the temple, and He goes to the mountain and sits with His disciples. And He tells His disciples, of course, he, the disciples hear Him saying about the temple that there will not be left one stone upon another. So this surprised them. This was like a sacred you know, place. So it surprised them. So when they went up with the disciples to the Mount of Olives, and as they're looking at the temple... And looking at the beautiful gate and it's glistening and all of this, he tells them again that one stone will not be left on another. And he begins to tell them about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD uh, and the end of times. Then the um, fifth dialogue was when he told them basically to watch and pray. And he does so by two parables. One is the parable of the ten virgins we're all familiar with. And the second was the parable of the wedding feast where a man, uh, a king has a feast and he invites everyone and they're all invited to come and people begin to give them excuses and so on because they're not watching and they're not ready for the coming. The last uh, dialogue is the dialogue of the judgment day where the Lord warns them of the coming judgment day when he will separate the wheat from the tares, the righteous from the uh, unrighteous. Today we'll focus briefly about the dialogue with the Jews. They had questions and challenges to the Lord, and He answered them uh, in a very wise way, but there's something we can learn from uh, this encounter. Uh, And mind you, the inquiries that the Jews were making of Christ were not because they had questions, like real questions, but they wanted to challenge Him, and they wanted Him to catch in more words so they could accuse Him. 
The first question was regarding his authority. So after they saw him enter into Jerusalem as a king and cleansing the temple and began to preach in the temple, they asked him, by what authority do you do all these things? By what authority do you enter Jerusalem as a, as a Messiah? By what authority do you cleanse the temple and knock over the money changers? By what authority do you do this? Um, and the Lord answered and said to them, I will also give you one, uh, ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And then it says that they reasoned among each other and they said, what? If we say from heaven, then he will say to us, why then do you not believe? Then on the other hand, if we say that he is, that St. John is from men, all the people will stone us for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they did not answer, uh, they did not, so they said, so they answered and said, we do not know where he is from. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So once they figured out among themselves that, you know, we can't answer this question, then the Lord said that I'm not going to answer your question. So it seems from the scenario that the Lord actually didn't answer their question. And he didn't answer it directly, but he answered it indirectly. How so? Um, and notice the position that they put, they put the Lord in. They put the Lord also in a tough position. Because if he says that uh, the authority by which he says these things is because he's a priest, then they will say, well, we have a high priest and he will revoke your priesthood. Right? And if he says that this authority of mine is because uh, I'm saying something new, then they will say that he is a blasphemer. So either way, they will want to catch him in something. But the Lord here, he asked him a question and then they didn't respond, so he didn't respond to them. But he brought up to them about John the Baptist. And why? Because St. John the Baptist was the one who actually witnessed of Christ. If you remember when he first saw the Lord Christ, he said to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God. So St. John witnessed that Christ was the Messiah. That's why he asked them about Christ. So he didn't answer directly, but indirectly through the witness of John the Baptist. So what is the weakness here of the Pharisees? We can say that the first weakness was that they rejected his authority. They rejected the authority of Christ. And yes, we're all here and we're all Christian. We're all sitting here in the church and we all say that God is the ultimate authority. But you know, sometimes we also we reject the authority of God. If there is a particular authority that we revere, then we would abide by the rules that are set by that authority. Right? Or we can say we would abide by the commandments of God that He sets before us. Um, so when we accept uh, one's authority, then we abide by His uh, commands. I'll ask a question. How would your peers in church or in school or in work um, answer this question? If you ask them this question, or if I ask them this question, is so-and-so, and you can fill in your name, is so-and-so trying to live a true Christian life. How would your co-workers answer this question? How would your peers here in church answer this question? And how would your family members answer this question? If the, if, if the answer is different from all of these, then perhaps we're being like, uh, we have the same weakness as the Pharisee, where we reject the authority of God. Because if He was an absolute authority in our life, then it wouldn't matter where we are. We would fear him and we would revere him. And we would abide by his commandments, right? Um, 
And also, if we accept and confess the authority, then his commandments are given priority over my will and the, uh, my lawful uh, liberties. What do I mean by this? If I revere his commandments and his authority, then his commandments would supersede my will and even my liberties. What do I mean by my liberties? The things that are lawful, right? Would supersede. Um, this is... Uh, um, this is like uh, when St. Paul was speaking about um, uh, eating food offered to idols. You know, for us Christians, it doesn't matter. Food is food, right? Everything is clean. But then he said, if somebody comes who is offended or is because of his weak faith that you're eating food offered to idols, then it's better for you not to eat. So he says there's a law of love that supersedes the law of liberty, the law of freedom, right? So he's saying here, if I really revere the commandment of God, then even the liberties that I have, I could forego them for the sake of somebody else's salvation, for the sake of submitting to the commandments of God. This was the first question. The second question was regarding the taxes to Caesar. And this question was asked by the Pharisees and the Herodians. So the Pharisees, do you think they agree with paying taxes to Herod and Caesar? No, because to them, their, own, their only king is God. They will pay their tithe to this temple because this is who they consider as their, as their guide. The Herodians, however, they actually they, they submitted to the government and they accepted paying taxes to the Romans. So you'll find the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're usually at odds against each other about this issue of taxes. So they brought it up to the Lord and they said, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God and truth. So look, they're buttering him up, right? They begin to praise him. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the uh, person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes or uh, to Caesar or not? So they put him in a place, both between the Pharisees and the Herodians. So whatever he answers, one of them will be upset, right? And one of them will reject him and perhaps want to plot to have him uh, killed. But when uh, it came to the Lord, um, uh, and the irony here is what? As these Pharisees and the Herodians, they're at odds with one another. But when it came to Christ, they were united together. This, this you find the same thing happening in this world. You'll find two people who are at odds together, and both of them maybe are going in the wrong direction. But when it comes to be against somebody or the church, or a Christian, they'll unite together against that person. Or they unite together against the church. You have many different movements. You have the atheist movement, you know, and you have the all many different movements. Sometimes they're at odds within, with, with each other. But when it comes to being against the church, they somehow unite with each other. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of Pilate and Herod, right? You'll find on Good Friday, uh, you'll find in the readings, about Pilate and Herod, they didn't like each other. And this is mentioned in uh, Luke 23. It says, On that day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. So the enemies united together against Christ. Right. So this should come to no any surprise to us when it happens. Um, so what happened here is that they tried to flatter the Lord before they asked the question you know, about should we pay taxes or not, right? 
And we notice here, like even sometimes this happens with us. You know, people will flatter us and you know try to boast our ego before they ask us something. Oh, you're such a this, you're such a good worker, you're such this and this. And then they ask you, so what do you think if I, you know, cheat on my taxes a little bit? Because they want to, you know, ease their conscience. Halas, they they puffed you up. And if you care about the relationship, you say, wow, they just praised me. So let me just tell them what they want to hear. So that way, you know, we can keep friends and, you know, I can keep hearing this praise. So they thought that the Lord was like them. They liked to, he liked to hear this praise. But of course, this didn't uh, phase uh, the Lord. How did the Lord respond? He says, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And they said, whose image and inscription is on it? And they said, Caesar's. He said, therefore, render, uh, he said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. See how his, he dealt with this with great wisdom. Like, it's like, and he, we read something like this and we pray every time I read this that God give me this kind of wisdom when I deal with my brethren in the world. To be able to deal with uh, this kind of wisdom. Um, and this teaches us that the, the Lord is not against the governing authorities. He didn't come to start a movement against the government, right? Nor did the early church. Um, some people accuse St. Paul of being like pro-slavery. Somebody who and he is all for slavery because he didn't clearly condemn it in his letters. But to be honest, any whether slave or free to the believer, it doesn't matter. Because we're free because we're children of Christ. Our external circumstances, they don't matter. But if you asked us, would you rather be for freedom or for slavery? Of course, for freedom. Right? Because God created us free. So we would want everybody to be free and enjoy this freedom. Right? But I don't need to start a revolution to preach Christianity. It can be preached from the king to the peasant. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter. So the problem here, or the, the weakness of the Pharisees here, um, was that they were led by people's approval and flattery. They were led by people's approval and flattery. And again, this can often happen with us. The third question they asked was from the Sadducees. And this was about the resurrection. And the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection, and the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. So then what do they say? Look at this scenario they posed. They said that some of the Sadducees came, and they said, Teacher, Moses said, that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. And this was a commandment, or this was kind of the law, just to keep one's lineage. This was what they, you know, did in the Old Testament. Now, uh, now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and had no offspring, left his wife and his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. So they posed a question. Okay, We don't believe in the resurrection, and the Pharisees say there's a resurrection. So if you have the scenario where there are seven brothers, and each one marries the same wife, and they had no children, and they died. And at the end of the day, whose wife will she be in heaven if they were all you know, had her? And here, Yanni, uh, again, it's important to note here the Sadducees, um, they got their law primarily from the five books of Moses, the Torah. This is what they kind of built their belief on. All of the other writings in the Old Testament, they didn't hold as high regard as the Torah. And this is important in Christ's uh, response. 
So he responded and says, You are mistaken not knowing the scripture nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given to marriage. They are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was uh, spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So he answers their question. So the first question is about marriage. He says, you're mistaken. In heaven, there's not going to be marriage, but you're going to be like the angels of God. If you think about it, why do we have marriage here? We have marriage here to propagate, you know, the, the, the species. Ultimately, we have marriage because we die, right? Nobody lives forever because we die. But in heaven, we will not die. So there'll be no need for marriage, right? And there'll be no need for, you know, propagate the species because we'll all live in heaven and we'll never die and we'll be united with him. So there'll be no marriage, Yanni, in heaven. So this is what he's telling them. You'll be like the angels of God. Then when it came to um, uh, uh, regarding the the the, um, uh, the the Pharisees when they believed in the resurrection, or no, sorry, the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, he told them he brought for them a verse from the Old Testament from the Torah, from the first five books of Moses, and said, okay, it says that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom at the time they were dead, of course. So he said. If God is aligning Himself with somebody who is dead, no way. God will only align Himself with those who are alive because He is alive. So He said, therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, although they're not with us, they're still alive, and God said so in the Torah. Although after all of them, the fathers were, the patriarchs were dead. So He said to them what basically, that God is the God of the living and not of the dead, and they are alive. So He answered their question, and uh, he fled from their trap. So the third weakness here was that they did not know the scripture. They didn't know the scripture. And when I say know the scripture, this isn't like uh, knowing the content. But it's knowing the content and the meaning of scripture. If you remember, there was a, a man who came to the Lord. And he asked him a lawyer. And he says, how can I inherit the kingdom of heaven? And the Lord said, you know the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, okay, who is my neighbor? So the, the lawyer here knew the commandment. He knew the content of the commandment. But Christ wanted to reveal to him the meaning of the, con- uh, of the law. The meaning of the commandment. So he told them the story of the Good Samaritan. Of course, we all know that story, right? So he told them this. And he asked them first, before he told them the story, he said what? What is written in the law and what is your reading of it? So he make him understand. There is a difference between your reading of it and what's your knowledge of it. What is your understanding? So it's important for us when we read scripture that we know the content and know the meaning of what we are reading. Right? This is why it's important for us to study the Bible. Go to Bible studies. Listen to Bible studies. Right? Listen to sermons. I know some may say, well, this is boring and repetitive and so on. But this is how we understand what the meaning of scripture is. And if we don't know the meaning... You know, if you look at the Christians today, there are hundreds and thousands of different denominations. But yet we all can use the same Bible. Right? How is that? Well, because people can interpret things as they want. So how do we know what the true meaning is? Is the church. The church teaches us. It has been teaching us from the first century. The fourth um, uh, question was from the scribes. And there, here they asked the question about which is the first commandment. 
So one of the lawyers, again, who was a scribe, he said to him, what? Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And the lawyers here are not like attorneys, like we have here. The lawyers are the ones who specialize in the law of Moses, right? So they called them lawyers. So again, their primary focus was the Torah, the first five books uh, of Moses. Um, so what's the trap here? The trap here is that if Christ gives preference over one commandment or another, they'll say, no, you're a false teacher because all the commandments are the same. But then if he says, okay, well, I'm going to give you a different law, then they'll call him a blasphemer. You're not from God. So again, either way he answers, he'll be trapped. Then the Lord said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. So he answers. And then he says what? And the second is like it. He says this is the second part of the command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So he didn't do anything that they said. Right? He didn't choose one commandment over the rest. But he chose the two that all the commandments are summarized in these two. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So... They weren't able to accuse him. So what was their weakness here? Their weakness was twofold when they asked this question. Number one is that they classified God's commandments. They put God's commandments in categories. And sometimes you and I, we do the same thing. Um, how do we do this? We all say, okay, you know, lying is not as bad as stealing or committing adultery. Um, cheating is not the same as committing murder or cursing is not the same as committing a violent act so we begin to compare sins and say you know what I do this but at least I don't do that big one so now we're putting our sins in categories but you know what the person who commits adultery is guilty just like the one who curses right so the sin is the sin regardless right so sometimes we do the same and sometimes we do the same by saying like at least I don't do such and such as somebody else does right we look at ourselves so you know what I'm not as bad as this person I don't do this much like the people outside do I might you know say something I might curse I might swear I might do these but I'm not like the people outside right so then again we're putting the God's commandments in categories the second problem was that they they, the, they didn't understand that loving one's neighbor is equally as important as loving God Loving one's neighbor is equally as important as loving God. What do you mean? So you mean that loving my neighbor is like loving God? Yes. Listen to what St. John says. He says, um, <clears throat> If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. So St. John is telling us that the Lord told us that we can't love God without loving our brethren. And if I say I love God and I don't love my brother, then I don't love God really. Something's wrong. Something's missing. Or I can't really truly love God as I ought to love him. And then uh, also... Um, with the Lord, when He says, uh, love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. This is like the true love, when I can give without wanting anything in return. And I can't love my neighbor like this without loving God. 
That's why if we learn to love God, we will learn to love our neighbors more. If you find your relationships in your life are broken, ask God, help me learn to love you more so that I can love them as you love them. The last question is, the Lord Christ poses the question to the uh, Pharisees. And he said to them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So then he asked the Pharisees, who do you think, who is the son or who is this Christ, this Messiah whom you're waiting for, whose son is he? And it says what? They answered and said, the son of David, because this is the messianic lineage. He should be the son of David as prophesied. Then the Lord said to them what? How then does David in the spirit call him Lord? So he's saying here, how is it that David is calling his son Lord? This would never happen. The, the father would never call his son Lord, right? But he refers to that this happens where it's in the Psalms. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And if no one, and no one who, who was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did they dare question him anymore. So they couldn't answer this question. Why could they not answer this question? Because the Lord was pushing them to the logical conclusion that the one who is the son of David is himself the son of God. Because it says, uh, the Lord, um, uh, the uh, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord said to my Lord. So this was the conclusion that Christ wanted to bring them to. But, of course, they didn't answer. Um, so what is their weakness here? Is that they didn't want to confess the Lord because of the implications that that came after it. And sometimes, again, my brethren, we do the same. We don't want to confess our faith because of the implications that come afterwards. We don't want to... Um, maybe confess our faith because I'm embarrassed or they're going to look at me different or they're going to look at me weird or then they're going to ask me questions that I can't answer, right? So sometimes we are embarrassed uh, and these implications is why we don't witness to the Lord. Um, or we might say we don't want to get too close to God because of what that means. If I get too close to God, then this will demand me to stop some sin that I enjoy, or to stop me from hanging around a certain group of people because they are toxic to me in my life. And I don't want to do this. So I want to keep, you know, I love God and everything, but I want to keep such a, dis- a little bit of distance. Because I know if I get close, then the demand will be for me to change my life. And I'm not ready to change my life. So sometimes we do the same. We don't want to confess the Lord because of what this implies. My beloved, we find in ourselves, if we find in ourselves many of these, let's not lose heart. Because although this was the case of the Pharisees and they rejected him, in us this isn't the case. We have many saints who experienced the same kind of questions and weaknesses of the Pharisees and God saw them out. For example, St. Arianus, the governor of Encina. This man rejected God's authority and martyred many, many thousands and thousands of martyrs in, in Egypt. And one day this man, he was harmed and he took the blood of the martyrs, anointed his eyes, and he believed in Christ, and he himself became a martyr. So we see even the person who rejects Christ, or even rejects his authority, can one day turn. God can soften his heart. We see somebody like St. John uh, and St. James the Apostles. Um, they were led by the approval of people. They asked the Lord one time, do us a favor. 
let me and my brother sit one at your right hand and sit one at your left hand. So they liked the preeminence. They liked people to look at them in this honor. Right? But these are the disciples. But yet God saw them through. And they were ended up becoming apostles and witnesses and martyrs as well. And also we see St. Peter and even some of the early church. They, they didn't understand the scriptures. They knew the scriptures, but they didn't understand it. They said, yes, we have the circumcision. And we, you know, everybody should become circumcised before they're Christian. And they said, no, that's not the case. You can be Christian without having been circumcised. To the point where St. Peter, although he preached to, you know, uh, to the Gentiles, but it came to a point one time where he would be with the Gentiles when they were there. But then when the Jews came and were among the Gentiles, he separated himself from the Gentiles. It's a weakness. Right? But this is St. Peter, the one who is crucified upside down. God saw him through it. So if we have any of these weaknesses, we shouldn't lose heart. Right? But we pray and we ask God to see us through, just as you did with these righteous um, people who were enlightened by the work of the Holy Spirit. May God be glorified forever and ever. Amen.